You are listening to Beat the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 126. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be meeting Les Edgerton, who has published more than 20 books in his career. His latest, Hard Times, was published by Bronzeville Books on December 7th, 2020. Lee also teaches creative writing on the university level through private coaching of writers and on various online venues. He currently lives with his wife, Mary, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And during this podcast, we chat about uh, his background, which includes uh, serving two years in prison for burglary, his service in the Navy, and his work teaching other writers, and then, of course, also about his writing process and his own books. So stay tuned for that interview coming up here in just a moment. A quick reminder, uh, please uh, rate and review this uh, podcast. Go to thrillingreads.com forward slash rate. So you can uh, leave your rate and review. Helps me uh, get the word out about this podcast. And check out thrillerauthors.com to access my archive of over 120 interviews with amazing writers of thrillers, mysteries, and suspense. Okay, here's my interview with uh, Les Edgerton. Uh, Les, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Alan. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I'm kind of nervous, so if I, you know, stumble or anything, I'll, I'll break out the jack. I'll be all right. Yeah, all right. That's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so can you tell us about your background and, uh, I mean, how your life has influenced your writing? Because it's, uh, it's been a very interesting path you've taken. Well, thanks. I Yeah, I think if that's on purpose. It wasn't an accident. Uh uh, I uh, read my first book when I was about five. Actually, I taught myself to read. And uh, when I was five and I thought, I like this. And I thought, well, I could write a better book than this guy. And it turned out I couldn't then, but I can now, I think. And I always thought the way you became a writer, a good writer, was you uh, did the Jack London School of Writing. You just had experiences, then you wrote about them. So I did that. I'm 77. I did that until I was about 70. And just went out on purpose and got in bad situations for the experience. And then when I was about 70, I read this interview with Flannery O'Connor. And she said, if you live in the same little town, in the same little house for 17 years, you got all the material you'll ever need as a writer. And I thought, damn, I wish I'd have, I'd have read that years ago. I could have saved myself a lot of grief. <laughs> but I didn't. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, but no, I, I grew up kind of rough in East Texas on the Gulf. My grandmother had a bar and a cab company, and we ate all our meals at the bar. And uh, actually, when I was 12, I, I, I bartended for and all kinds of stuff when I was a lot younger, 8, 9, 10 years old. The, the laws were different then. And we're talking then in the 50s. And uh, saw a lot of guys uh, get in fights, saw guys get killed and stuff like that. But uh, when I was 12, she said, you're old enough now to learn the cab business. So she made me the night dispatcher at our cab company, which is in a little shack in a vacant lot next to the bar. And uh, she picked a slow night. Uh, we Freeport, Texas, where I grew up, has a lot of ships coming in to offload, offload chemicals and oil and gas and all that stuff. And we always had Norwegian and Russian tankers in port. And she had a cab company which would bring the sailors down to her bar. So she had it going all, she was a pretty smart lady. So, but she put me in a midnight shift thinking it'd be slow for my first day as a 12 year old. And uh, it was slow. And one of the drivers, the drivers are mostly drifters. That's, that's who drives, used to drive cabs and nice guys, but they're, they're kind of a rough group. 
And one was uh, teasing another guy with a rattlesnake. Well, the rattlesnake was dead, but the guy he was teasing didn't know that. He thought it was alive. And he kept telling him, keep that thing away from me, man. I'm scared of snakes. And the guy thought it was funny. He finally ended up throwing it at the guy, wrapped around his neck. The other guy pulled out a pistol and shot him in the throat and killed him instantly. Blood all over. Now, as a dispatcher, it's my job to call the cops. So we couldn't dial 911. And you had to look up the number. So I looked it up and called him. And he eventually had a trial, and the guy got acquitted because times were different then. They said it was justifiable. But uh, the guy did get out of town quick because the guy he shot had a lot of friends and relatives. <laughs> but that was when I was 12, and it got more exciting from then on. Wow, so you've really you've been accumulating this, a story since 12 years old. I can't even imagine. <laughs> well, the book that I wrote for Danny, it just, it just came out hard times. I wrote that yeah. when I was 12. Oh, really? Okay, I was going to ask you about that, too. Stories. Yeah. yeah it's based on two short stories. Uh, one I used to call it Mother's Love, and the other one was uh, the Mockingbird Cafe. And uh, uh, I, I remember laying on the couch writing the story in longhand at the time. and I, it, I didn't know how to get things published, and I just knew how to write. And uh, so it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I got it published, finally. Mm. And it, it, then it came out in my short story collection. Well, my agent uh, now, Svetlana Perana, Peranco, I'm sorry, she's got offices in Dublin and Paris, and uh, she read it, and she said, Les, she said, that story has haunted me ever since I've read it. She says, if there's any way you can make a novel out of this, she said, and do it right. She says, I think you can rival Cormac McCarthy for voice and everything. And so that's what I did. I tried to. I don't know if I achieved what she wanted, but I, I'm happy with it. But uh, yeah, I, I, I was right. I had a lot of stuff uh, uh, written by the time I was 12, 13 years old. I just don't didn't know what you did to get it published. So I just sat in a drawer. Yeah. And I, and I should say that Danny Garner, uh, we talked a little bit offline. I interviewed him for uh, uh, the show and he, uh-huh. uh, he really credits you a lot with, uh, with helping him out and everything. So that's, that, that's awesome that now you're, uh, I'm talking to you and you, it's being put out by, uh, by <laughs> the, the, the publishing house that he founded. Yeah. Danny's so, a remarkable guy. He's a brilliant writer. He's just a brilliant guy. He's done comedy. He's done everything. He's one of my heroes. Yeah, yeah, I saw that when I was. Uh, he he had mentioned he was on Death Jam comedy tour, so I looked it up and I I, kept, yeah. I, I saw his. Uh, he was so young when he was on there. I was like, wow, how do you even get there? <laughs> Were you like twenty one or something? I don't know. Yeah, he was a punk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, so the stories and so hard times, the stories there uh, and the characters. I mean, they're all based on on, on things that you experienced when you were growing up. Kind of, uh, I've said it in the uh, early uh, the Depression era. And so I, I was, a, I wasn't alive then, but I grew up in the same area in East Texas and New Orleans. We, we grew, we, we lived in Freeport, Texas, went back and forth near to Algiers, Louisiana, which is across the river from New Orleans. So that's my milieu. And uh, the people haven't changed much. It's, an, it's a, a culture that doesn't trust the law. We don't call the law when things go wrong. We take care of it ourselves. And it's a very moral and religious culture, and that hasn't changed. And I knew it hadn't changed from the Depression. It was still pretty much the same. Um, so, no, I didn't have to do much research. And I said it in a big thicket, which has always fascinated me. I grew up a little south of the big thicket, but the big thicket is an interesting part of Texas. It's, uh, I don't know if you remember Roy um, 
oh God, I can't think of his name. He fought for the heavyweight championship. He fought the Floyd Patterson. And uh, he's from the big thicket. And he's from a town in the big thicket called Cut and Shoot, Texas. And it's called Cut and Shoot because that's a, that's all they had to do on a Saturday night was cut and shoot each other. <laughs> and it's a rough area. But I grew up in a rough area, too, in Freeport, Texas. It's definitely a honky-tonk area. And I grew up in a honky-tonk. So, yeah, a whole different world and a whole different code of honor and, and everything. But they do have a very strict code of honor. You take care of stuff yourself. You don't call John Law. You just handle it yourself. And, and do you find really, that, and do you find it was challenging, like writing, you know, a, a book set in the in the '30s? I mean, like before we have everything we have now, all this technology stuff. Was it no? Challenging? And that's probably why I chose it because even though we got cell phones and all that, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with that kind of world, the mm-hmm. pre-electronic world, pre-Facebook uh, and all that stuff world. I'm very comfortable with that. Um, so no, it, it wasn't a stretch at all. And like I said, I, even though I didn't live through that period, I came a little later. I was born in 43. I, I know that the people and the culture was still pretty much the same. So I didn't have to, I really didn't have to do a lot of research. And then that book and, comes uh, out December 8th and it's available right now for pre-order. So if, yes, it is. So people can uh, go check that out. Uh, and I just mentioned that it's close to Christmas. So I'd rush out and buy at least two copies. Yeah. Therefore, yeah, got great gifts. One, one for yourself and one for a gift, maybe yeah. two or three for gifts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I also, when I was doing my, uh, my research on you, 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 you do a lot of what you talk, you teach, teach creative writing courses at many universities and professional writing programs. So how did you get into teaching? And uh, well, yeah. I, I, uh, I made a mistake. I went and got my MFA, which I wish I'd saved my money and bought coffee instead. <laughs> and I went to a really good school, but it's just, I already knew how to write. And it's more for, I think people that are more sheltered in their lives, maybe haven't had the experiences and haven't read as much, but I'm a voracious reader. I read from three to five novels a week and I have all my life. So I've read everything there is. I really have. And I knew how to write. That's how you learn to write, I think. But I started teaching for UCLA in a writer's program, extension school. I got fired from that job eventually. I get fired from all my jobs. But my attitude is I was looking for a job when I found this one, so it's not a big deal. And uh, I, I, I was writing residence for three years at University of Toledo, got fired from that. And well, I didn't get fired, just didn't get renewed taught at Trine University and a bunch of things. But the students I was teaching asked me to coach them privately, and I did. And in about a 15-year period up till now, and I teach an online novel writing course now, I've had over three dozen people get get their books published. So I, I, I think I've been very successful. I don't know any other class that can, that can uh, you know, have that kind of a track record. But I've been very, very, very lucky. Some great students. Um, I, you may have inter, inter, even interviewed a few of them. I don't know. Do you know Megan Beaumont or uh, Bob Rothstein? Uh, I, I won't go name it a bunch of people, but they're yeah. I've had a lot of success with writers getting published. No, I haven't heard. I haven't. I'm not familiar with them. When I go check them out, because I was looking for new new stuff to yeah. read. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. So the MFAs. Yeah, I've always been curious about those too, because they're so yeah. They could be very expensive uh, courses uh, um, versus learning like privately through you, I would think, versus uh, going through like a whole program like that. But I don't know. Some people seem to love it. So, <laughs> Yeah. Well, my, my, to be a member of my class, it's 400 for a 10-week session. 
and you don't you don't write a book in 10 weeks and most don't but i have another thing we allow auditors to come in and sit and watch everything we're doing and it's extremely valuable and that's only 50 bucks so uh, i i've had people that have their mfas audit my class and say afterwards say less i learned more just watching you and your students in 10 weeks and i learned the whole of my college experience because we're very practical we're not teaching a bunch of pie in the sky stuff our only aim is to get the people get everybody takes our class get them published and that's that's what we strive for we do real things and uh i'm very very proud of it proud of very proud of my students they're they're a hard-working bunch and they're very talented what is your, what is like the your, your your writing process then like like you mentioned outlining uh, do you like sit or do you just sit down and start writing a book or do you have it all mapped out what is your writing process actually I have to have a book if I'm writing a novel it has to percolate in my brain pan for about ten years eight to ten years but I've always got five or six or seven or eight novel ideas going on at once constantly so when it's not like I finish one and I've got to wait another eight to ten years I've got another one just waiting in line uh i'll never run out of things to write about um but uh yeah they had to percolate i do insist my students outline but it's not an outline like uh roman numeral and page after page like mrs grundy did back in ps 109 <laughs> our outline consists of uh 15 to 25 words and it's five statements it's a uh, one statement uh it begins it and lists the inciting incident, whatever created the problem the novel is going to concern itself with. The next three are the three major turns in a novel. And the, and the fifth statement is the uh, the resolution. And the, res, the only definition of a resolution with us is that it has to contain a win and a loss. It's a very simple outline, but uh, I, I do kind of insist on, on an outline, especially with newer people, because I wouldn't jump in a car and start driving to Alaska unless I had a map. And I, I think the people that say they're pantsers and they're, they, they don't want the freedom of just writing what comes in their mind and all that crap. I think they're kind of fibbing to themselves. I, it's like Hemingway said, no, I don't, I never outlined, but he did. He, uh, he wrote drafts. He, he called his outlines drafts and they were a hundred thousand words each. So he'd write draft one, draft seven, draft eight. They were all outlines. They were just the wrong way to outline. I think too time, too time consuming. And what are the tools of the trades that you use then? Is it just like a, a word document or like a notepad, uh, note cards or. No, our online class is just something called Slack. It's a, we don't, we don't have meetings in person with, Every week, each student posts a certain number of pages to the class. The entire class and myself reads them, and I limit my class to 10 people And uh, because it used to be they had to read everybody's work and comment on everybody's. It's got to be too much for them. So there's five in one, one section and five in another, although they can read anybody they want to and comment on it. But they read the others in their section, and then post back comments for the entire class. And I do the same. So it's like being in a real class on the ground. Uh, everybody sees it, what everybody else is doing. We comment on each other and we're, we're not a hold your hand, pat you on the back class. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> everybody in my, my class could relate instances where I told them to go bury that crap in your backyard as deep as it can. So you never come across it again, or I'm throwing up my mouth when I read stuff. We're not kind but we're realistic. Uh, we not only tell you what's wrong, we tell you how to fix it. Well, that right there is good training too, to be, to, if you want to be a writer, because you need thick skin. <laughs> yeah. 
no, thick skins don't work in our class. We I haven't lost many, but I've lost a few. There's <laughs> there's always a few snowflakes. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I, I was curious too now uh, with the with this whole. Uh, pandemic thing has that changed your writing process at all or, or no or, no no i'm i'm uh i've i've been a writer all my life and i've been full-time writer for many years and I, my my daily job is sitting in front of the computer writing and that it's the same with or without it doesn't matter yeah it's like we've been as writers we've been uh we've already been self-isolating for years <laughs> sure absolutely what scenes do you find do you, do you feel find any scenes that are harder to write than others or yeah, and a lot of times sex scenes are hard for me because it's hard to be original. Mm -hmm. But I wrote what I felt was the most original sex scene ever written. At least it was by me. And what I did was most people, when they, they try to write sex scenes, they try to one-up everybody. They, ha they have the character screaming louder, more fingernails on the back and stuff like that. And I said, everybody does this and it doesn't work. And so what I did, the best sex scene I ever wrote was I had a couple they, they were new to each other. They just met each other, this detective and a girl. And they're in the top floor of a, du a duplex in New Orleans. And the bad guys are on the bottom uh, apartment and they're in the top. They can't even walk across the floor in their stocking feet without alerting the bad guys to them. So when they make love the first time, it's under those situations. And so rather than be loud, they had to be extremely quiet and still when they were making love for the first time. And it turned out to be an excruciating scene and excruciatingly sexual. So I'm very, very proud of that. And then when I, I sold that book and auctioned a random house, and the guy said I needed to cut it, so I did. I never put it back in when it got published later. <laughs> oh, oh, that's the thing of the publishing, are they? They cut. Yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's when I got screwed by Random House, and I'm yeah. proud to say it. Yeah, that's that's one of the drawbacks of uh, of of, mm -hmm. of the publishing bit side of the business, right? Oh, there's <laughs> a lot of drawbacks, Alan. Trust me, you know that. <laughs> Authors influenced you uh, when you were coming up. Uh, uh, oh, I, I like people like Harry Cruz. Uh, my fa my favorite writer, and I th think the guy I think is the best writer ever was Camus. I, I every, my friends all kind of know that, and so I've got like twenty copies of The Stranger around because that's my favorite book. So every Christmas I get a copy of The Stranger, <laughs> and I if you need a copy, I I can give you one. <laughs> um, but I like uh, I've always liked dark fiction. I like the when I was real little, I read the Russians and then the French writers. And my grandmother had a library. It was very, very, it was better than the public library. And that's where I started reading. Um, Malpassant was one of the first, Duffy Malpassant was one of the first writers I read. I read the, uh, uh, oh, the Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire when I was six, stuff like that. Uh, Death on the Installment Plan. Uh, I, I didn't read uh, the Hardy Boys books at all. I started right out with adult books, and that's what I enjoy. You said that Hard Times started as a short story. Did you did you find that challenging then to flash that onto a whole novel, or did it come to... No, you, had it, yeah. you just have to understand the difference between a short story and a novel. Mm -hmm. And a novel isn't just a longer short story. Basically, a novel is like a movie, and a short story is like a TV series. And... Uh, in a novel, you still have that rising action and the epiphany and all that stuff. You no longer have those in short stories. Uh, editors assume today that all the, the uh, truths in life have been discovered. So you just have a little blip of a, a, a small insight in short stories. 
And that's what uh, my short stories are. But a novel has to be more than that. So that's where it gave me a lot of room to expand and everything. The other short story besides uh, uh, A Mother's Love, or uh, I actually I changed the title to Hard Times, was uh, about a black guy in Detroit that uh, escaped prison in Michigan. He killed a guy robbing a bank, trying to get money for his daughter who's in an iron lung and couldn't afford it. And so he he got caught, got thrown in prison, he escaped from prison, traveled to New Orleans, which is where we pick him up in the story. And uh, he ended up killing a white cop in New Orleans and wanted to lamb again, ended up where Amelia, uh, my the woman uh, protagonist in her family, she saved him from her dog's killing him. And then they take off together. Uh, so, so I was able to put it together and get an overriding arc and a, and a, uh, a, uh, an epiphany and all that stuff, which you don't have to have in a short story. Writing short stories are, are you people might think, oh, the, the, they're easier, but they're, they're, it's hard <laughs> to write a short story. That's, they that are works. for some people, uh, but I, I, I believe kind of like what, uh, uh, not Camus, uh, uh, Chekhov said. An interviewer asked him how he got his ideas for short stories, and he was talking to him. And he looked over, and there was a cup or a teacup there. And he said, "See a teacup?" And the interviewer said, "Yeah." And he said, "Tonight I write a short story about that." That's short stories to me are very, very easy. There's just no money in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the problem. And like, how many? What? What? How many words is usually consist for a short story? Oh, it it really depends. Now they've even further divided the character, the uh, the limits into flash fiction sudden oh, fiction yeah. all that stuff but a normal short story i would say is about nine to twelve thousand words yeah, okay that's what used to be considered a short story now they get them a lot shorter and when i started writing there wasn't the internet or anything so when you when you publish a collection today anybody they throw them out like crazy and there's not much to them but when i uh when i was writing everything was done paper and ink or paper and uh typewriter and to get a collection, publishers did not want to publish them because there's no money and never has been in collections. So to get to make sure there was an audience to get a collection published of your work, you had to have at least half the stories published in reputable literary journals, which I did. And then they thought, well, at least there's a small audience there. Then they would publish them knowing they still wouldn't make any money. Today with the Internet, you can throw all kinds of crap, and they do. There is a lot of crap out there posting short story collections and anthologies and everything. I've taken part in them, but I don't take a lot of pride in most of them. There, uh, there's no such thing as editors anymore, for one thing, and oh, except yeah. copy editors, and that's not an editor. But I'm, I'm sorry, I'm the old guy, you know, yelling at the clouds and <laughs> telling the kids to get off my lawn. Yeah, well, no, it really has. To, I mean, I can imagine because you've you you you've seen the changes. But yeah, I I read the old articles about you know the, I can't remember the name of the real famous editors of the of you know back in the uh-huh. old days, and you don't yeah. see it. I don't think you have that anymore. <laughs> no, it's gone. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. When I was, I I got a had a book accepted in auction by Random House. It got down to Random House of St. Martin's, and it was called The Perfect Crime at the time. And I went with St. Martin's, or I mean, Random House. I should have went with St. Martin's. Random House offered me 45000 and St. Martin's offered 50000 for the advance. And now I know you take the money, but I went with Random House because they were Random House. And 
two weeks later, Bertelsmann bought them and they shit canned a bunch of books. And mine was one of them. I got first payment of twelve five, and that was it. Oh, wow. And, oh, yeah. And I, I closed my business and everything because I thought now's the time to write full time. Two weeks later, I'm out of a business. I'm, it's, it's hurt me financially up till this minute. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's the one I was telling you about. I had this sex scene and it was mm-hmm. my favorite of all time. But uh, any, I forgot where I was going with this. I have half Alzheimer's, so you just got to yank me back if I get off track too much. <laughs> I had rewritten this novel probably eight times, completely rewritten it. My agent got it, loved it, had me rewrite it four more times. And then I got my editor at Random House, and he made me rewrite. I'm talking about total rewrites four more times. That's the way it used to be, and they weren't like copy editing you know put a comma here do the change of word here there were edits where take this character out put this character in on major stuff that's no longer done much anymore except maybe the uh the big five they Mm. might be the only ones doing that anymore but i can imagine like so so basically would take a from the time you start writing to the, the book being published, it would take well over a, a year probably then to. Yeah, that was normal. A year is kind of a short time in those days. Yeah. <laughs> and that was done on typewriter. That wasn't done, you know, on, with electrons where you can change things real quickly and everything. In fact, when you change something, you had to start beginning and type the whole thing out again. Oh it, my gosh. A lot of work and a lot of money. When I, my first novel got published, I didn't get an agent. I just went to publishers and I went alphabetically. And the 96 person I sent it to, I was going to do 100. 96 person I sent it to took it. Uh-huh. I had four more to go. And it was University of North Texas Press. And I went alphabetically. So I was in the universities. There weren't many publishers left for me to send it to. But that's when you had to send the entire manuscript in and give return uh, snail mail postage for the them to slip it back to you uh so it was not only expensive it was just <laughs> it was very expensive it cost 20 some bucks to send and receive a manuscript to one person today you, you hit a button on the you know on, on the computer and that's it yeah yeah at least that part's a little better for the, for the and, writer and I see people say well i sent my thing to 20 30 people we get <laughs> a button dude you haven't done any work <laughs> you know, have a clue what work is. <laughs> uh, and so what are you working on now? What's uh, what's next for you? Well, I've got a couple of things. I've got a children's story. I'm talking to a friend of mine about co-writing with her about a squirrel that's afraid of heights. And I've got two more uh, noir novels, crime novels uh, I'm writing on. So I usually have about five to 10 projects going at once. Uh, I just sent Danny a proposal for a new craft writer's craft book where I use the movie uh, Thelma and Louise is the basis for it, which I use a lot in my teaching. It's, it's the most perfect uh, written movie ever. In my opinion, it, it's perfect written novel. In fact, there's not a single scene in it that should be taken out or that isn't a teaching moment, not a single one. It's, it's absolutely flawless. But anyway, uh, and some other things, I forget, I, half the time I forget what I'm doing. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I've got two novels I'm working on now. One's about a, uh, a guy that uh, he's, he, he takes, he's kind of a hit man that uh, makes his hits look like accidents. So he works with very wealthy people to take out his, uh, their wife or husband, but he makes them all look like accidents. And it's turning into an encyclopedia for the perfect crime. 
I have a bunch of perfect crimes in there. And there are perfect crimes and there are criminals that get away with it. Trust me on that. Mm. Uh, in fact, I, I think it's something like only 30% of all murders get solved. So there's about 70% people walk around, got away with it as far as murders. So it's not crime doesn't pay. I, in fact, when I got caught, they caught me for, I think it was 82 crimes, 82 uh, burglaries. And I had over 400 and they didn't get me on any of them. I had a rap partner rolled over on me. Oh, wow. that's the only reason they knew about that. That's and after I started working by myself, I never had any problems. In fact, when I got out of prison, I didn't quite I didn't quit doing criminal activities. I just quit getting caught <laughs> for a long time. Yeah, that is shocking. I remember reading about that. I remember reading about that because I was reading about the cold cases, and I was shocked to see how many, like like you said, seventy percent of even murders are yeah. never solved. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's I had a cop tell me the perfect. He said, you're going to ever want to murder somebody. I tell you the perfect way. And he says, put them in a car, break their neck, but break it the right way and then send them down a ravine into a, into a tree. They always get away with it. He said, that's simple. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's for, for, for writing uh, fodder, not for anything else. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. I would never think of doing anything like that. <laughs> Uh, so uh, Les, before I let you go here, um, I, I always like to ask my guests, and and, and you're going to be perfect for this because of your your background teaching. Any advice for aspiring writers listening to this podcast? The best advice I can give, I'm going to steal from another writer. Uh, now I can't think of his name, but anyway, he said, "Read if you want to become a good writer, read the whole of Western literature for the past 400 years, and then if you live long enough, read the same amount of time in Eastern literature." Because if you don't know what passed for good in the past, you don't know what passes for good today. And that's that's my advice. That's where you really learn to write is read mm-hmm. and read everything you can get your hands on. Yeah, that's good advice. And so where can the listeners uh, find you? You have a uh, online, do you have a website? Yeah, I have a blog that I don't tend to as much as I could. It's uh, dot blogspot.com backslash and uh i'm on amazon you i have an author's page here you just go to les edgerton all my books will pop up there that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me uh les thank you so much for being on the podcast i really had a good time talking with you thank you alan i just bought your book by the way <laughs> odd jobs oh thank you yeah <laughs> i'm looking forward to the read Oh no! Now, now, now I'm getting a little. Uh, now I'm in the spot here. <laughs> no, you're not. Your name's on it, man. Be proud of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Les. Thanks for listening to the Meet the Thriller Author podcast. Be sure to visit thrillerauthors.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover great thrilling reads. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe, uh, rate, and give a review. Uh, to it wherever it is that you're listening to this uh, podcast be it uh, iTunes uh, Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Stitcher TuneIn Spotify uh, wherever it is that you're uh, listening to this right now I would appreciate it and uh, please do check out my own thriller novels over at my website at alanpeterson.com until next time